0: Hello everyone and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the managing director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks, is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume in September of 2021 here in New York City. And hopefully our guests today will be able to join us there but our goal on these talks and our goal at our conferences is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very, very excited today to welcome one of my favorite authors, one of my mom's favorite authors, one of Anthony's favorite authors, and I think one of America and the world's favorite authors, frankly. He's profiled many uh, of the most important people and consequential people throughout history and writes about them in a very engaging and thrilling way and that is Mr. Walter Isaacson. Uh, Walter is a professor of history at Tulane. Previously, he was the CEO of the Aspen Institute, the chair of CNN, and the editor of Time. Uh, He's the author of Leonardo da Vinci, The Innovators, Steve Jobs, Einstein, His Life and Universe, Benjamin Franklin, An American Life, and Kissinger, a Biography, and co-author of The Wise Men, Six Friends, and the World They Made. And most recently wrote a great book called The Code Breaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race, which is about CRISPR and and major breakthroughs that Jennifer Doudna helped lead uh, related to gene editing and gene research, including uh, discovering RNA, which sort of helped accelerate uh, the development of vaccines that have uh, hopefully put most of the pandemic here in the United States behind us. I know around the world, people are still struggling, but know uh, we're all vaccinated here in the office uh, in New York today, and very thankful to her and her team for, for everything they did to make that possible. So hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview.
1: So, so John Dorsey, I just want to say we're making history today. I am the worst dressed person on a SALT talk, okay? You usually have that distinction. Look at Mr. Isaacson there, even with the tie on. I apologize, guys. I'm, I am traveling today, and so, but I want to hold up the book, uh, Walter. I thought that this was a fabulous book, and before we went live, I did give Walter my critique of his books. I'm a big fanboy of you, Mr. Isaacson, and uh, I think you've wrote some exceptional books. And John is mentioning my introduction to you was actually as a college senior. I read The Wiseman uh, that you wrote with Evan Thomas, and I thought that was a uh, a brilliant book about the neo-Victorians that came out of the World War and how they built the post-World War II architecture. So congratulations on everything. Uh, but here, you've written so many consequential books on history. How did you zero in on Jennifer Doudna and CRISPR as your next subject? What what What, what thought went into that, sir?
2: Well, just as you do with uh, Skybridge Capital or with the SALT conferences, I'm always looking for what's the next big trend that's going to really change our society. And we've had three great innovation trends in uh, modern times. One was the first half of the 20th century that was built on the revolution in physics, sort of caused by a lot of Einstein's theories. And I wrote about him through a biography of him. Then the second half of the 20th century, where you and I came of age, Anthony, was the digital revolution. And I did that through Steve Jobs in a book called The Innovators. But as we hit the year 2000, we sequenced the human genome and we mapped every bit of our DNA to what genes uh, they were. And I think we're entering a life sciences revolution. So I wanted to take on that one. And Jennifer Doudna is the person who invented, with her colleagues, the way to edit our genes. And so I think that will be the most useful and also the most morally challenging technology of the first half of the 21st century, is the ability to change our genes.
1: Well, I, what, I, what I will say, and I, and I said this before we got on the air, you are brilliant at taking very complex things and not necessarily simplifying them because I think that's when you simplify something people don't get the understanding, but you're able to break them down in a way where they do. I'm just gonna go to page 188 of the book and I'm gonna implore people that are not scientifically uh, uh, attuned like like me uh, to read this book because like in Einstein, I learned more about physics, uh, Walter in the Einstein book than I think I could have in a 40 hour class Uh, what you write about CRISPR, how you explain CRISPR. This particular diagram, I think, is absolutely brilliant. So I'm going to recommend to people that they buy your book uh, and they learn about CRISPR. But in your words, sir, what is CRISPR?
2: CRISPR is very simple. It's a gene editing technology. It allows us to go to a particular spot of our DNA sequences and cut it up. It's so simple that by a bacteria, who are not much smarter than we are, have been using it for a billion years. It was discovered that bacteria have clustered repeated sequences. They were named CRISPRs. And what they do is every time a virus attacks them, and trust me, viruses have been fighting uh, against bacteria longer than they've been fighting against us. But every time a virus attacks a bacteria, the bacteria takes a little mug shot and puts it in these clustered sequences. So if the virus attacks again, they know how to find that virus and chop it up. Just what we kind of need in this day when we're being hit by wave after wave of viruses. With Jennifer Doudna, the heroine of my book, did with Emmanuel Sharp and Jay, and they won the Nobel Prize for it in twenty. Uh, the uh, the most recent Nobel Prize they did this back in twenty twelve is say, hey, we can reprogram this system that bacteria use so that it can cut our own DNA when well, we choose to have it cut. We can program the guide uh, in that system so it will cut human DNA at a particular spot. And in some ways, this is the big idea of the 21st century, which is that molecules are the new microchips. We can code them. We can reprogram them. We can code them to make vaccines for us against coronavirus. We can code them to edit our DNA. So that's what CRISPR is, is a simple, programmable way to edit our genes.
1: So, I mean, one of the fascinating things, because I'm I'm going to tie it back to your other books, you talk about creativity with Einstein or somebody like Steve Jobs, and what we're finding here in this book, uh, in most creativity, someone sees something from another realm and they bring it into their realm. And of course, uh, uh, Jennifer Duda and her team did that with the understanding of bacteria. But how did they stumble upon uh, the Cas9 protein? and the vital role it plays in immunity and genetic engineering. It's such a great story. I was wondering if you could regale us with it here.
2: Well, you've read the book carefully, anybody who drills down to Cas9. But first, let me simplify. Cas just means an enzyme, and it has a little number attached to it. And an enzyme is a little piece of protein in our cells that can do things, like cut the DNA. So Cas9 is just a scissors. And when you combine it with the right RNA guide, it knows how to cut at the exact target you want to cut. Now, how did that all get discovered? It begins with some graduate student in Spain looking at bacteria from salt ponds and wondering what these components are that allow it to fight viruses. And then he works with people who work at a yogurt company, Denisco, because what do yogurt company and cheese companies do? They have starter cultures that are made of bacteria, and they have the sequences of them year after year after year as they go bad. And what makes starter cultures of bacteria go bad is viruses attack them. So they noticed over the years, every time viruses attacked, these bacteria developed new CRISPR spaces. And so with all of that put together, they were able to figure out that this simple system of a guide RNA and a scissors is how CRISPR-Cas9 works. What Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier did in 2012 is say, let's just isolate all those components. You talk about simplicity, you said, involved not just um, getting rid of complexities. It meant breaking complexity into its components. That's what Steve Jobs taught me. That's what Johnny Ives, his design director, taught. And by the way, that's what Jennifer Doudna did was say, let me do this in a test tube. Let me figure out exactly what components do which things. And she figured out it was a pretty simple system. You just could engineer a single guide, which is a little snippet of RNA that you could program, and an enzyme called Cas9 that was a scissors, and you could cut it. So that's how they figured out the exact components of this CRISPR gene editing system.
1: It's it's brilliant, and it's fascinating. And so since you're a professor, I'm going to say a few things, and I want you to test and grade me, Professor Isaacson, uh, and see if I got some of this stuff right. And so uh, what I learned in your book is that the structure of a virus is such that when it enters the body for the first time or a bacteria for the Mm -hmm. first time, it, it doesn't understand it, and it overreacts in some cases, and the immune system flares up, and Raise congestion in the lungs or all different types of overreaction to the, uh, the, the response, if you will, to the attack. But if it has this sequence or this mugshot, to use your example, and it recognizes it, then it dials itself into the right frequency, if you will, and the right approach to busting or destroying the virus. What did I get wrong, sir?
2: That's about right. And that's how our vaccines work. Most importantly, the um, RNA vaccines that use messenger RNA. That's the Pfizer and the Moderna ones, of course. And what that messenger RNA does is it simply goes into a cell and says, build this protein for me. And what they do is they program in a little fragment of the spike protein that's on the coronavirus. So as you just said, now if you get that vaccine and you get hit by the real coronavirus, your immune system knows how to recognize it. And that comes out of the work that was done by Jennifer Doudna and others back in the 1990s on what is the structure of RNA? How does it replicate itself?
1: A few months back, we had Dr. Peter Hotez on Salt Talks uh, from Baylor University talking about the uh, the vaccines, the safety of the vaccines, the uh, vaccines. Uh, i'll speak to you candidly sir we're pro-vaxxers here both john and i have been vaccinated if you don't mind have you been vaccinated sir do you mind if i ask you that
2: not only have i been vaccinated in july of last year i became the first person down in new orleans to enroll in the pfizer clinical trials so i was uh through the clinical trials throughout last year both starting with the placebo and then being switched over into the real thing. Because I believe not only in vaccines, but that we all ought to participate in citizen science. And I just went online and registered for Pfizer vaccine clinical trial. And
1: do you think these vaccines are safe based on all of this research that you've done and your understanding?
2: Oh, they're absolutely safe. And by the way, because millions of people around the world have been using them in the past four or five months, uh, we've had a real-world case study that they dramatically, uh, well, almost totally bring down the cases of severe COVID, and they even fight the variants. And uh, nobody's had, I mean, people have a sore arm, an occasional reaction. But these are incredibly safe. And let me just explain that in my book, I show how it works scientifically. And I think when people understand things, when they're less mysterious, then they're less frightened by it. All the vaccine does is it doesn't mess with your DNA. It doesn't put some version of the virus or some microchip inside you. It simply says, we are going to put a messenger RNA that codes your cell's manufacturing region to build a tiny bit of the spike protein of the coronavirus. Now, that tiny bit of the spike protein, that can't hurt you. It's not even a whole spike protein. It's certainly not a whole virus. But what it does is it acts, as you said, like a mugshot. So our immune system recognizes the real thing when it hits. So there's nothing it can do to cause you to get the virus. It can only save you from the virus.
1: And I think it's very important. I hope you don't mind those leading questions because we're pro-vaxxers here. We're trying to dispel all of these myths, all the conspiracy around this. Uh, we're encouraging everybody to get vaccinated. And 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 I will tell you, and I hope you'll be proud of me in saying this, I have handed this book out to anti-vaxxers uh, and I've got very educated people that are watching uh, the wrong information or seeing, wrong things they just need to understand
2: what's going on I think it's so important to understand the motives and the beauty of science and how bacteria do things how our cells do things and once that's demystified it's like if you demystify a little bit the workings of a company or some market you're going to go into then you're going to be ahead of the game so all I try to do in the book I'm not preaching I'm telling you a story about how these discoveries were made, and that'll make them make you feel more comfortable because you'll say, "Okay, I get what it does now."
1: the The, the book with David Kwaman, i don't know if you've read David's book. It was written in 2012, called "Spillover." And I, I found the book uh, last year, uh, for that matter. I read it. It's really about how the animal kingdom and the human civilization is now spilling over onto each other, as a result of which we're getting a lot of cross transfers of mammalian viruses. And so uh, he predicted in 2012, we'd have a big pandemic. We got one in 2020. He said that there would be many of these. I guess my question to you related to that is do you think mRNA technology is going to be that force multiplier, that sort of moonshot, if you will, to protect us uh, from what he was talking about?
2: Yes, absolutely, yes. It is something that has turned the tide on a million year struggle that, you know, humans and our predecessors have had with viruses because it's simply easy to recode it every time a new virus comes along. It can both uh, be changed within two or three days. All you have to know is the sequence of the virus attacking you and you can code in a uh, new messenger RNA. And you can use it as a detection technology. You can use CRISPR as a detection technology. Just code in the sequences, and then you can know instantly, like a home pregnancy test, do you have this virus? Is it strep throat? Is it a coronavirus? So I talked to Nubar Afayan. I suspect you know him. He's the chair sure. of the board of Moderna, you know, been in part, uh, part of the venture capital world in Boston. I hope he's a uh, Somewhere a partner of yours, and uh, because he's a brilliant guy. And he said that night when his scientists called him and said, we were able to reprogram messenger RNA so that it can take on this coronavirus. He said it took him only three days, a weekend, to do it. He was standing out of a restaurant in Cambridge in the freezing cold with his coat, and his first thought is, we have turned the tide in our war against viruses.
1: You know, it's it's fascinating, and it it leads to the segue question about other diseases, Walter. Uh, Do you think mRNA and CRISPR can be used to fight off other types of diseases, and will there be vaccines for for other, other things like cancers, et cetera?
2: Absolutely, and not only do I think it will happen, in my book I describe sometimes it's already happened. Let's start with CRISPR. You know, we have two systems, really, CRISPR, and we have vaccines. CRISPR is being able to edit our genes, and that's uh, the tool uh, that I described that Jennifer Dowd (coughs) invented in 2012 and won the Nobel Prize for. We've been able to use that to cure a patient uh, in Mississippi uh, last year of sickle cell, which is a disease that involves a single-letter mutation in the three billion pairs of letters we have in the human genome. And so her genes were edited so that she is now producing good blood cells. We've used it on blindness in Portland, Oregon. This is all in the past year. Used it on cancer at the University of Pennsylvania and in China and on other blood diseases in um, uh, Germany, they've been using it. So single gene and simple genetic mutations, sickle cell, cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy, Huntington's, Tay-Sachs disease, all of these within a few years are going to be able to be fixed by CRISPR. Secondly, CRISPR is going to be able to help us use immunotherapy that's personalized to fight cancer tumors and to be able to turn off the ability of tumors to fight the immunotherapy. So the immunotherapy will win. Secondly, it'll be able to detect cancers, just like I said it can detect viruses or bacteria infections. We'll have home detection kits within a year or so that'll use CRISPR to say, does my kid have strep throat? Do I have COVID? Is my cancer tumor returned? All of these things will help us in the frontiers of medicine. And finally, getting back to the messenger RNA vaccines, we'll be able to use those against any bacteria. We'll be able to use those against any virus that comes along. And we'll be able to use those to tell our body to create proteins that we might be missing because we have some genetic disorder or to fight protein or to make proteins that'll help our immunotherapy systems fight cancer. This is a game changer. And that's why I wrote this book.
1: Well, I, I need you to tell your scientific friends that, uh, I want to eat ice cream when I'm 125 years old and not get fat, Walter. So make sure you put that in the you mRNA. You obesity,
2: which is not one of your problems, Anthony, <laughs> but obesity is part Did you hear that, Darcy?
1: <laughs> obesity is not one of my problems. I just want to make sure Darcy heard that. Darcy Go heard. Go ahead, it. sir. I'm sorry.
2: And um, But obesity is partly genetically determined. You've seen that. And it's partly determined by environment, like most things in life. We will actually be able, and this is where it gets ethically tricky, to edit our children. Let's say you're fat and your parents were fat and you have sort of obesity runs in the family. There will be ways in a decade or two to edit your sperm or egg or reproductive cells or early stage embryos to say, I don't want my kids to have the genes that predispose them to obesity. And that's where I think we're going to get into ethically tricky territory is when we decide we're going to have designer children. And worse yet, we might say the rich will make it a free market. And the rich will be able to say, I want my kid to be six inches taller. I want my kid to have more muscle mass. I want my kid to not have any obesity genes. I want my kid's blood to carry more oxygen. All of these things we will be able to do in the next few decades and we have to figure out, should we do them? And should we allow people to just buy them so the rich will be able to buy better genes?
1: It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating ethical dilemma. I want to go back to the book. Uh, Jennifer Dudna talks about a dream she had in which Adolf Hitler appears as a CRISPR client. And how does she and other scientists think about the ways to ensure that CRISPR isn't misused, eugenic-type purposes, and, and wh- wh- what did you say about all that?
2: Well, that's the nightmare that, you know, the the nightmare she has where she Hitler wants to start using her new tool, and that's when she gathers scientists from around the world, including China, as well as uh, England, Europe, and the United States, to say, what rules are we going to put? mainly on what we call inheritable edits, where you edit the sperm or egg or embryo so you can make designer children. Because when you do that, the edits you make pass on to every subsequent generation. You've edited the human species. And so in the book, I go step by step, because this is a slope that's pretty slippery, and say, yeah, we want to cure sickle cell, and maybe we want to cure sickle cell in the kids of people who have it, before the kids are born, but what about enhancing the amount of oxygen your, your blood carries? Do we want to allow people to buy you know, more athletic children if that, whose blood cells can carry more oxygen? And so there's no easy answers, and I'll spoil some of the sales of my book. There's not a last chapter that says here's the 12 answers, but I wanted to go case by case to open people's minds about how we should do it. And the way I think about it is we don't like government regulation in general, but on these medical procedures, we ought to say, let's start with clear diseases, such as sickle cell, Tay-Sachs, muscular dystrophy, where we're taking a patient that has a clear condition that's debilitating, and let's fix that. Let's not cross the line for the time being on enhancements, like to making taller children. And secondly... Let's try not to do it in an inheritable way, because I'm not sure we're ready to make changes
1: that will be inherited by the rest of our species. I think I think, it, I think it's fascinating. I, I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Darcy. He has questions from our audience. I want to hold up the book. Uh, Walter, I love your books. Uh, you know, you, you're probably not going to write this biography, but you introduced me to General George Marshall. Uh, yeah. And you would introduced me to him in, in The Wise Men. And when I think about America and I think about someone who is quintessentially American and who did so much for the war effort in World War II and the subsequent architecture of the post-World War and, of course, the Marshall Plan, which had his name. Perhaps he didn't come up with the idea, as you pointed out. Yeah. Uh, but I, 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 if you're ever going to write one, uh, I would love to see you write one about General George Marshall. What an amazing man. Uh, and so I just wanted to pass it on before I, I turned it over and to And By the
2: way, the reason that's a wonderful biography topic someday, and Forrest Pogue has already done one book on him. Yes, I've it read Forrest Pogue's book. Right. Is that, you know, better than anybody, I don't know why I'm telling you this, Anthony, but in this day and age, we've become so polarized. Back then, there were people like George Marshall or the wise men I write about in our book who believed that we should rise above politics when it came to things like figuring out how to deal with post-war Europe, how to deal with the Russians, how to deal with containment. And we need that again today. When uh, Harry Truman had uh, Marshall as Secretary of State, he didn't even know what political party George Marshall belonged to. And we've become so partisan. And the people who can help lead us out of partisanship actually, are the people who go to SALT conferences. It's the business people, the people who know we have to get things done in this country. We have to be pragmatic. And we should all each day after the past five or six years we've been through where things have been polarized, say, what can I do each day to try to be more sensible and more pragmatic and to tamp down the poison and polarization that has crept into our system.
1: Well, amen, and also I'll just add that as I pass the baton to John, uh, in science, sir, for some reason we've allowed the political polarization to affect our scientific decision-making and our public health and safety decisions, which you and I both know have exacerbated the crisis and the great tragedy of the pandemic. But but with that, I'm gonna turn it over to John. I know he's got a series of questions for you. And uh, and again, the book is amazing, uh, Code Breakers by Walter Eisenberg congratulations on another masterpiece sir
0: Thank you Anthony Walter again it's a pleasure to have you on and uh, as Anthony mentioned we allow uh, members of our community to submit some questions before the episode so I'm going to go through some of those as, as well as some personal interest follow-up but we, we talked about the ethical dilemma the moral dilemma um, are we at the point if we wanted to right now you alluded to some of it that we could create a child you know if I'm having a child and, and we we work to, to edit uh, the sperm, uh, and the eggs prior to conception, um, that we could make a seven-foot-tall, blue-eyed uh, child with a you know high IQ and, and different personality traits? Is that something that's fully possible to create a designer baby right now, or is that something that is still being developed?
2: It's fully possible, especially the traits you talk about involve multiple genes and also the interrelationships of genes with environment. Uh, that said, we know how to increase muscle mass. That's just a simple gene that regulates myostatin. Yes, we know certain genes that will predispose to height or better memory. So we're getting close to be able to do part of what you've talked about. And here's the thing that you have to focus on. we've already, It's already happened. In 2018, a scientist from China who had been to Jennifer Doudna's conferences and seminars actually did do inheritable edits to make designer babies made two uh, twins twin girls in china whose early stage embryos had been edited using crispr it was a simple edit that this doctor made it was uh, to take out the receptor for hiv the virus that causes aids and so the girls were born without that receptor that may not seem like a big deal, but now in this day and age of pandemic, being able to edit our children so they lack certain receptors for viruses might seem like a pretty good first step. Uh, there was a, he was arrested because even in China, there are regulations against making inheritable genetic edits. He's been put in jail for three years, but it shows that we're already starting down that slippery slope to be able to do it. And the simpler, muta- the simpler genetic edits in terms of making designer babies will be available in, within a decade. And that would easily include eye color and hair color, muscle mass, height, perhaps blood oxygen levels, those type of things. And then you, you uh, ordered up a whole recipe that was even more uh, forward-leaning. So I think that would be two or three decades down the
0: road right so I'm going to play devil's advocate on the the moral and ethical piece for a, piece for a second and that is if we could create a, a race of humans and, and new children that were born, let's say we crossed that line that you said we should stop at just preventing disease, but what if we could create a whole new generation of children that are smarter, uh, more ethical in the way they think uh, you know, a variety of different traits that we' are zeroing in on how to program those into DNA and that could accelerate the progress we're making as a society in terms of, you know, fixing climate change or, or renewable technologies and, and uh, traveling to outer space. I mean, things that we need to potentially uh, extend the, the life of the human race. Is that something that we should avoid what is sort of inevitable progress and that, you know, other countries might be doing the same thing? Why should we draw that line? You know, if you think about it morally and ethically.
2: I'm not sure we should draw that line forever. I said we should start first with the things that we know are very safe and are easy to do and have deep medical needs, like somebody suffering from Huntington's or sickle cell. George Church at Harvard, who's one of the uh, sort of best supporting actors in my book, asked your same question in my book. So I want the reader to grapple with it, which is if I could make kids that were five inches taller and Uh, stronger and had, you know, whatever hair color I wanted. Less violent. Less violent and smarter and more empathetic. Tell me why that's bad for the human race. A couple of answers. One is, yeah, we should keep our minds open to that. Every creature, large and small, on this planet uses all the tricks in its playbook to help itself thrive and produce better successor um, you know, children, so that they'll survive. That's what this planet is all about. So we should keep our minds open to that. First, though, the safety and uh, unintended consequences issue. If you start fiddling with a whole bunch of genes, you have to make sure you know that, for example, the gene that has a receptor for HIV also seems to help protect against malaria. So you don't. You want to know what unintended consequences are. You also have to know the off-target effects. But you know what? Those will be solved at some point. We'll be very good at making edits, and we'll know what they do. So we get to your ethical question, not just the practical question. Here's the two things I would use in my moral thinking, and I'll let the reader go through this step by step. One would be we don't want to go where it went in Brave New World or in the movie Gattaca. where just a total free market And we end up with a genetically enhanced elite of rich people buying better genes for their kids and sort of a subspecies of the unenhanced. And we take the inequalities of our society and we encode it in our DNA so that uh, we really become totally separate as people, those who've been enhanced and those who haven't. I think that's a dangerous path to go on. Maybe at some point people say, yeah, I want that. And maybe you can't prevent it. The other thing is I kind of like the diversity of our species. At the end of the book, I talk about sitting on my balcony overlooking Royal Street in the French Quarter of New Orleans. And there are people coming by that are tall and short and fat and skinny and gay and straight and trans and you know, white and black and creole colored. And all that diversity actually adds to the creativity, the richness, and by the way, the resilience of humans as a species. And I sometimes worry that we might start editing out that diversity in a few decades if we could. But these are questions that I think I want readers to go through my thought experiment, but I don't want to tell them what the answer is at the end, because I don't have the answer, and I think we all have to discuss. Maybe we do want to allow parents to enhance their children.
0: Right. And you talk about unintended consequences of disease, uh, you know, editing out diseases and, and what that could do. There's unintended consequences of getting rid of diversity in the gene pool, as you mentioned, sure. uh, that, that could have implications in society. We've done that with some society, I,
2: project products. Yeah. You know, it's like Prometheus snatching fire from the gods or Adam and Eve <clears throat> biting into the apple from the tree of knowledge and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's like, all right, if we're going to do this, we have to be a little bit careful of what we've wished for.
0: Right. And, and it goes back too to Jennifer Dowden's dream about Adolf Hitler is who is the arbiter of what's desirable and what's not? You know, if, if the wrong person is the one making that decision, that could obviously have very sort of nefarious consequences. And and talking about that, to a Hitler like eugenics,
2: you know, we've had that in the first half of the 20th century where the state mandates gene editing. However, what we'll get to is a free market eugenics, where if we allow every person to be able to buy whatever genes for their kids they can afford, that will be a uh, a eugenics in a liberal sense or libertarian sense where we will edit our genes, uh, based on a free market, uh, free for
0: all. So let's say, let's say the government makes gene editing available to every couple, uh, that that's having a child. What's to say that is certain people because of trauma they've experienced in their life or discrimination, don't self edit certain elements out of, out of the gene pool.
2: Yeah, I think that's a possibility. Uh, you know, the very difficult discussions of people say, all right, I'm deaf. Do I want my kids to be deaf or not? They may want to edit in deafness to their kids so that there'd be more diversity. I've seen discussions based on my book about race and whether people would say, let me change my skin color or let me change the sexual orientation of my children. So the best way to answer your question, John, it's for all of us to look into ourselves and say if they pull the curtain and we're at a genetic supermarket and we get to check things off and nobody's gonna judge us, what would we check off? What what traits would we want and not want if we could privately make that decision? And then I think that helps us think through what we might do as a society.
0: Right. And and thinking back to your issue around race, there's a great book called The Vanishing Half, which is actually based in Louisiana, you probably read it, where you have two twins, it's it's a work of fiction, but one chooses to live life, they're, they're light-skinned uh, African-American or some African-American heritage, one chooses to live life as a white woman, one chooses to live uh, life as a black woman, so it's just, there's all these questions around identity uh, that, that come into this, it's just a fascinating topic that you could write a whole other series of books about, but I want to talk about China again for a second, you mentioned those twins uh, that were their genes were edited before they were born, the twins that were born in 2018. There was a rebuke from the Chinese government around the the man who who conducted that experiment. But I would say people would generally accept the fact that China is a little bit more cavalier in the way they experiment uh, with science and things like gene editing. Do you see a future in which China or other countries are much more aggressive in experimenting with these types of things, designer babies and, you know, creating you know, potentially Vladimir Putin talked about this at a conference several years ago about creating a race of super soldiers and things like that. And do you think if the United States is more cautious that it might get left behind uh, in some of those experiments?
2: It's a really good question is why the Defense Department and DARPA are funding a lot of the CRISPR work that's being done, including work on anti-CRISPR, which is pretty much what it sounds like. How do you turn off a CRISPR system? And Vladimir Putin is, as you mentioned, very much talked about that to a youth group, using CRISPR to create soldiers that don't feel pain, soldiers that don't suffer radiation sickness, soldiers that might be more courageous. So Russia, I do worry about China, interestingly enough, has pretty much been on the same wavelength as the United States and Europe and England, which is why that Chinese scientist is in jail. In my book, there's somebody I spent time with, Duang Ching-Pei, who's the head of the Chinese uh, Academy of Sciences in Guangzhou, and he's part of the team that Jennifer and others put together to try to figure out what will be the international rules of the road. And when Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan went to Alaska a couple months ago and met their counterparts from China, as you know from reading about that summit, there was a whole lot they disagreed on. But at any summit, you also try to make a list of things where you're going to collaborate and cooperate. And CRISPR is going to be one of those. Because I think even the breakthroughs happening in China on using CRISPR and gene editing to fight cancer are things that will be shared with the United States, just like in the old Cold War with Russia. Even in the midst of uh, the uh, fights we were having, there were scientific and cultural exchanges. So I think it's important to try to create some international regime of regulatory uh, processes to say, we're going to try to use these new technologies only in a safe way. And maybe the rest of the planet and the United States will get to a point where we're going to allow parents to edit their children and make them stronger and many other things. But I think we have to do that thoughtfully instead of just a sliding down a slippery slope without, you know, going step by step, hand in hand.
0: Right. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about you know your your career as a biographer, all the different people you've written about. You've obviously written about some of the most as we mentioned in the open consequential, interesting, smart people uh, throughout history. What are some common traits that you found in groundbreaking people that maybe you observed in Jennifer Doudna and her team as as they were so intellectually curious and and discovered the use of Cas9 uh, to create CRISPR, uh, as well as people like Albert Einstein, Leonardo da Vinci, Steve Jobs? What are some common traits you've seen in those types of people?
2: Trait number one is curiosity. These people are, as Einstein once said, I'm not smarter than anybody else. I just happen to be more curious and the good thing about curiosity is it's something we all can have in fact we all had it in our wonder years when we'd walk around saying why is the sky blue or why does the water swirl that way and finally gets knocked out of us by grown-ups that say quit asking so many dumb questions but the common characteristic of my characters has been that they don't outgrow their wonder years they remain curious throughout their lives about things the sky is blue, that's in Leonardo's notebook. Why is the sky blue? He's putting up sprays of different types of water to try to figure it out. It's also in Einstein's notebooks. And Leonardo's notebook says, why does water swirl when it goes past a rock? That's something Jennifer Dowdner puzzled over in Hawaii. And these are patterns of nature, like the swirls that go past rocks or the diffraction of light that carry across all sorts of, of views of nature. When Einstein was just a you know six years old, his dad gave him a compass, and the needle twitched and pointed north wherever he turned the compass, and he was mesmerized by it because oh, nothing's touching that needle. What? Now you and I remember getting a compass when we were a kid, and we go, "Oh wow, the needle it points north," and then we're onto something. You know, "Oh look, a dead squirrel," and we're onto something else pretty quickly. Well, Einstein on his deathbed. Is still trying to do a unified field theory connecting electromagnetism to particles. In other words, why does the compass needle twitch and point north? So I think we can all keep that childlike curiosity where we say things like, why does this bacteria have sequences in its DNA that repeat? Now, there's no reason to try to know that. But if you keep being curious about why it happens you may discover, well, that's a virus-fighting trick. And then you may discover, well, that's a useful trick to have in this day and age. So whether it's Steve Jobs, who was the most curious person I've ever sat with, or Ben Franklin, or, I mean, Ben Franklin, he travels to Europe. He watches those swirls of water and discovers the Gulf Stream. Einstein, Leonardo, wanted to know everything you could know about every subject that was knowable. He was curious. So my one piece of advice is be curious, be passionately curious, be playfully curious, be obsessively curious, and stay curious all the time.
0: And who knows if we'll ever be able to program curiosity and uh, you know innovation and inspiration into DNA. Uh, there, there are certain things that may not be programmable. So that'll be, that'll be fascinating to watch that. But Walter, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Salt Talks again, both Anthony uh, and myself. And my mother, as I mentioned in the open, are, are very much looking forward to this episode. So we're looking forward to sharing it with the world and uh, hope hope to have you at our conference in September as well.
2: I look forward to seeing you in September. Uh, thanks for having me at this. You do a great job both in understand, helping people understand how great companies grow, but also in helping people just be curious, passionately curious. Thank you so much.
1: The book is Code Breakers by Walter Isaacson. We greatly appreciate you being on. And uh, we are handing this book out to as many people, Walter, that uh, we think need the book to understand what's going on in the world so they can get comfortable with the future. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today.
0: Always good to be with you, Anthony, and nice meeting you, John. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's SALT Talk with Walter Isaacson, author of many fantastic books, including most recently The Code Breakers, which is about Jennifer Doudna, uh, her creation of CRISPR, and and the entire revolution around gene editing and and therapeutics. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode or any of our previous SALT Talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks and on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these salt talks, particularly, particularly when we touch on issues around, uh, you know, coronavirus vaccines and, and the benefits of that, uh, as well as just everything that's going on in this genomics revolution. We think it's very important that people educate themselves around these topics so they can avoid, you know, falling prey to conspiracy theories. Um, and on behalf of Anthony and the entire salt team, this is John Darcy signing off from salt talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.